folks. My guest today is Mr. Art Bell, and not the science fiction supernatural radio host, Art Bell, who is the new author of Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central, and Lost My Sense of Humor. And uh, the book is available on Amazon and all of your local bookstores everywhere if you you know, still using brick and, and mortar. And his website, artbeltwriter.com, where you can find out certainly much more about him. But I'm really pleased that, Art, you're joining me today. Thank you very much. How are you, Art? And how are we doing? You know something? Just got to stay in the house. That's my, uh, that's my rule. You know, I think that those of us, and certainly I was never an executive to the level of your being a founder and a CEO, but I've done network uh, work. And I was going to say, for those of us in broadcasting, we're kind of used to sitting in little cubicles and just kind of doing our <laughs> own thing, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's not exactly like I'm running around having to do things out on the street for 10 hours a day. So Yes, plus I've been writing for the last few years. So talk about sitting in one place and not worrying about it. That's what I've been doing. I just find it so phenomenal that, you know, when we talk about people that have got a creative idea and they go, gee, I think I'll go ahead and start a, a network. And I know many who have tried, but at the end of the day, when we look at you, and what you've done with Comedy Central, and I know it wasn't called Comedy Central when you got it going, but it turned into becoming, shall we say, a venerable provider of what now is the leading late night talk show hosts and so many icons of, I mean, a lot of people would go get the news for, you know, you've got Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, of course, is a spearhead, Trevor Noah. Many people start going to Comedy Central to get their news rather than going to ABC, CBS, and what people used to rely in the old school as reliable sources of news. And it seemed like, how did it become that kind of a meteoric rise to say it's not only comedy, but it's where we get our truth in the news? It is amazing. I mean, uh, and it's also very satisfying to me because when I, when I was originally pitching this and when I was trying to get it started, I really was hoping and saying to myself and others that you know, this comedy network would change the world in some, in some way someday. Um, I, I mostly thought of that in regard to comedy and people's uh, enthusiasm about enjoying it. But, you know, the fact that we got into news and topical coverage as early as we did, that's uh, in the early 90s, just a couple of years after we launched, I think that was a, definitely a step in the right direction and one we always intended to take. Um, but you're right. I, I will say I am amazed and, uh, and gratified that young people, especially who didn't otherwise take an active interest in the news or current events, started tuning into Jon Stewart uh, on The Daily Show. And you know what? That's a credit to, to Jon Stewart as well. I, I got to say, if it was just anybody, I think it wouldn't have gotten the attention uh, that it did. But John was the right guy uh, and the right kind of comedian uh, for the job. And he, you know, he really made it work. So I know we're going to get into the meat of your book. In launching what you first saw, and this wasn't Comedy Central at the time, it was another channel. And somehow you partnered up with another carrier of channels. You want to you want to get into that story a little bit about what was on your mind and how did you go about just finding out a roster of comics and comedians that would join you in this enterprise? Well, the story starts when I was a kid. I loved comedy. Well, fast forward um, to college when I had to make a decision on what I was going to do with my life. And I had studied economics. So I took a job as an economist and spent three years in Washington as an economist. 
after three years, I sort of said, you know what? I love television. I really love comedy. I want to get into that. Maybe I should do something about it. And I went back to school and I went to uh, business school. And when I came out, I looked around. It was uh, the early 80s, early to mid 80s. And I said, how come there's no comedy network here? You know, there's an all sports network. There's an all music network. There's an all lots of things network. And there's no all comedy network. What's up with that? Because that's where I wanted to work. So when I got to HBO, um, and by the way, I got to HBO because I had been an economist. They were looking for somebody to do. I know that's kind of funny. Um, they were looking to, for somebody to do uh, financial and economic forecasting. And as my friend who called me from HBO said, I think you're the only guy in the industry who knows anything about econometrics and economic forecasting. So I went to HBO with that job. Um, and when I got there, I started talking kind of casually to people that like, you know, comedy channel, why don't you guys start? Why, don't, why doesn't HBO start a comedy channel? And I was pretty much uh, rebuffed for a bunch of reasons. I wasn't taken seriously until finally I was. And uh, one of the things I write about in the book early on is an early meeting I had with the, uh, the head of programming at HBO. And I didn't know her, but I did want to pitch her thinking, okay, if anybody takes me seriously, it would be her. So I, I went in and had a meeting. I pitched her and she gave, she just said, no, that's the worst idea in the world. No, nobody wants a 24 hour comedy network. And there's, there's no comedians who would be on a 24 hour comedy network. And she basically, you know, threw me out of her office. Not, you know, she wasn't rude about it, but she did, you know, that was the end of it. By the way, there's the door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks for all your help. Um, so I, but as, as I went back to my office, I realized she was wrong. She was just wrong. There was going to be a comedy network and I did not understand how HBO would let that opportunity go by. Because at the time, HBO was doing some of the best comedy on TV. They were doing one-hour uncut specials, un uncensored specials with Robin Williams and Whoopi Goldberg and, and Robert Klein and all of those guys. You couldn't see that stuff on television anywhere. You had to go to a club to see Robin Williams do his act. So that was pretty, uh, pretty impressive. But finally, through uh, some luck and pluck, I ended up in the... In, um, the office of the chairman of HBO, Michael Fuchs. My boss's boss caught me sort of working on a, a write-up of what I thought Comedy Channel should be. And he said, what's this? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's a write-up for a Comedy Channel. Nobody's really taking me seriously, but I thought I'd, you know, I'd, I'd write it down. And he said, well, come on, let's go talk to the chairman. Now, I was a junior guy working as a marketing and financial analyst. I if I got into the elevator with Michael Fuchs, I'd break into a sweat, you know? I mean, that's, he was one of the most powerful guys in Hollywood. So, you know, my boss's boss took me to his office right then. I went in, no presentation materials, no preparation, and I pitched the channel. And I think my enthusiasm and my passion, the fact that I've been thinking about it for five years or whatever, got me through. And 15 minutes later, he said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's explore this further. And uh, we did, and I gave a big presentation a few months later, and they said go, and that's that's how we got into it. The reference to your programming director that you had met to that said, you know, nobody's going to want to do it. I would take an issue with that to say that when this first got going, relatively speaking, it was shall we say for the just the sheer volume of production. How difficult was it to get one hour of comedians by putting either one camera, two camera, three cameras in a room? 
with these people and say, you know, as far as cost of production versus sitcom or all of the other formats, this is relatively inexpensive just to be able to get the content in here, right? Yeah, well, that was kind of the secret uh, to getting us into business. One of the reasons people said you couldn't have a comedy network is because be they thought it was very expensive. Well, it was expensive to put any kind of network together in those days because you needed, you know, satellite uplink facilities and lots of infrastructure, but HBO had that. But they were a little daunted by the cost of production, um, not only of stand-up comedy, but of all the other comedy that you just mentioned. So what I suggested was we take existing comedy from either stand-up shows or from comedy movies, comedy television, anything we could find, take scenes from that short form comedy and put that on the air as clips and add that to, you know, what I assume would be a good roster of some sitcoms and some movies and some original programming. And as time would go by, we'd do a more original programming as we got more successful. That's pretty much what happened. Although we were, while we originally had permission to use clips and we had to get permission from the unions, you know, the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild and all the other guilds, and they originally gave us permission because they thought it would be great that it would be promotional for the movies or television that we were taking the clips from. The Directors Guild changed their mind at the last minute, about eight weeks before we launched. So all the clips that we had, we couldn't use. Uh. Uh, yeah, imagine my disappointment. Um, so I had to scramble for a plan B and we did, you know, we did drag as much programming as we could into the situation. Luckily, there was a lot of stand-up obviously already produced and had been produced over the years because comedy clubs all over the country, either they had one camera going or two cameras, one way or the other, they were, they were taping as much as they could of their acts. So there were lots and lots, there's lots of, there was lots of footage of comedians, some of whom uh, became quite famous uh, doing their acts. And, and we, uh, we scoured the earth and found as much and, and uh, licensed as much of that as we could. And that was helpful. Also, even before we launched, Mystery Science Theater 3000 came in the mail. Uh, it, was, it was a show that was being done as kind of a lark by some guys in Minneapolis. And uh, the show was, you know, watching it was Joel Hodgson and uh, a comedian and two of his robot friends watching bad movies and making jokes about them while the movie was playing. Yeah, I remember that. It was a great show. <laughs> it still is a great show. Yeah, yeah, yeah if you can believe this, it's still on the air. It's gone to other networks. It's gone, I think Netflix is doing it now. I mean, it's, a, it's just one of the best shows and longest lasting shows in comedy these days. And um, it came in the mail we immediately made a deal for it. So right off the bat, we had something I thought could be a big deal, a big hit for us. And it was early on, it was a cult hit for us. So that was good news. Yeah, that's tremendous. I mean, it's just so many ways that you folks were able to establish what was going to become so many cultural icons on, uh, you know, in, in what we call mass market entertainment. So HBO got this going. They announced their plans to launch a comedy channel. And obviously you were on to something because along came uh, the competitors. MTV announced a competitor, right? About this time that they made HBO made the plans to uh, launch right. the comedy channel. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, we've been working on the channel for four or five months. And Michael, Michael Fuchs, the chairman, said, okay, we are going to do a big announcement party for this thing at, at, in L.A. 
And he did. And he was very, you know, enthusiastic. We're going to make a lot of money. It's going to be the best channel anybody ever saw. You know, he really put it out there. The, a day later, a day after that uh, press conference, MTV Networks announced that they too were launching a comedy network and they were going to call it Ha, the comedy network. And they ended up launching six months after we did. Now, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they didn't have a whole lot of uh, interest in launching a comedy network until they heard that we were um, and then thought, you know, we better get into the act here. And that made me laugh a little bit um, because six months earlier, there, there were no comedy channels in the world and people thought it was a bad idea. Suddenly there's two. And, and we went head to head with them for six months. You know, we were competing for programming and for audience and for cable distribution and for advertisers. I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. And it, it, you know, it was almost personal, certainly from, from the point of view of those of us in the trenches. I was going to ask you, is that Sumner Redstone's Viacom in those days or not yet? Yes. Oh, that was exactly it. That was Sumner Redstone's Viacom. They got to remember. <laughs> he owned everything out of the sun. <laughs> here's something you probably know. Sumner Redstone's Viacom had Showtime, which was HBO's arch enemy in the pay TV business. Um, and Viacom also owned MTV. So it, it was easy to take these guys on as arch enemies and make it personal because, you know, HBO didn't like Viacom in the first place. Um, so that's, that's what happened. And, uh, but at the end of the year, we'd been competing and uh, I thought we were winning. We had a bigger audience. We had a better concept. I thought, you know, listen, I'll go through the whole thing. You always think you're winning. Um, but they said we were going to merge. Uh, Michael got together with uh, with Frank Biondi, who was the head of Viacom at that point under under Sumner, uh, and they knew each other. And they said, "Look, we're going to beat each other into oblivion here. Why don't we just merge and uh, and see if that works?" And that's what they did. And they called me up, and I was, of course, very disappointed. But they put me together with my opposite number, the programming head for Ha, and they said, "Okay, you guys, figure it out. Figure out what this channel is going to be called." what kind of programming it's going to have, what it's going to be about, and good luck. So that's what we did. Well, when you talk about passion and dreams and creating something and then the rarity of it really happening, and then you get to actually oversee its meteoric rise, and then you take a look at a merger. So I'm going to ask you, you know, the book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central, and we'll get into how it changed its name, etc. But you've just touched on the whole merging with the other network and everything else. So your subtitle, How I Lost My Sense of Humor. So I'm, st I'm starting to see it already. But where did your subtitle come from for your book? And did you really lose your sense of humor? Well, I would say I lost my sense of humor for a minute. Here's where the subtitle came from. You talk about our meteoric rise after the launch. Let me tell you, the first year after we launched Comedy Channel, it was widely considered a failure, certainly the first six months. I mean, it was, we didn't have enough programming, as I pointed out. We didn't really know what a Comedy Channel was all about. We were sort of making it up as, as we went along. I mean, I had, I had plans and everything, but, you know, uh, plans sometimes go awry. So we were, we were constantly trying to figure out what to do to make things better. And about three or four months into it, uh, Michael Fuchs, again, the chairman of HBO, called me into his office. He was very disappointed, to say the least. He was very disappointed. And he said to me, Art, 
You know, it took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor. And that was the story about losing my sense of humor. That's really phenomenal. And I get it. So, but on the turnaround, when did you and everybody involved know that the channel was going to be a success? Well, that's, that's almost a different question. I mean, starting with me, I knew the channel was going to be a success when two things happened. One, Mystery Science Theater 3000 came in the door. Now, why was that significant? Because I always assumed that if there were a comedy channel in the world, then innovative comedy that couldn't show up anywhere else would start showing up uh, with us. And there it was, right off the bat. Mystery Science Theater 3000 wasn't going to get on NBC or HBO or anywhere else until we came along. Suddenly there was a place they could put it. The second thing is, you know, I was told by the head of programming that comedy comedians wouldn't want to be on the channel. And that was sort of wrong because almost immediately the comedy world was flattered that we were throwing a comedy <laughs> network on their behalf. I mean, nobody, not nobody, but, you know, it was a way that we were recognizing what they did as an art form akin to music or, you know, other things um, that deserved a whole channel. And they started hanging out with us and they started coming to find us when they had uh, good ideas for programming or, you know, wanted to be on the channel. They literally started hanging out at the channel uh, as we were putting it together. And those two things made me think, okay, you know, one way or another, this is, a, this is a good idea and this is an idea that will last. As for everybody else, I think at the end of the year, I think there was some skepticism as to whether the world would really end up with a comedy network. That said, by the end of the year, we had, we had really attracted an audience. Uh, and surprisingly, the audience was younger. When we went to talk to advertisers or cable, uh, cable executives and we said, you know, we really think you ought to launch this or advertise on it. And they'd say, you know what? We looked at it. We don't get it. We don't think it's funny. But my teenage son thinks it's a riot and watches it all the time. So that was, you know, that was another potential sign of success. When we went into um, uh, the merger and became Comedy Central, we renamed it. It, it was, I wouldn't say it was immediately successful, but at least we had resources. We had programming uh, from both sides, which was a lot more programming than one channel needed. <laughs> Whereas both channels were kind of like running a little thin before. Hmm. So that was very helpful. And, you know, while there were two different cultures, one from HBO and one from MTV networks coming together, both sides really wanted to see a comedy network in existence, meaning me, my opposite number, the people working on the channels, everybody was of the same mind. We wanted to make this thing a success. Um, and so we did. Okay, so now obviously we're talking about the, um, the people involved underneath the brand and underneath what I'll call airwaves, even though it was cable, of course now internet. Uh, and we've seen mergers before. I, you know, as an example, the Sirius versus XM, you know, in the 90s, and then you have them combined, and now they've got such a glut of content. Now you're into an editorial process to say, we got to start casting the overages aside because we only have so much bandwidth or we only have so many hours on the clock. Then you're actually talking about people working together, different corporate cultures. Let's come back to your book, The Real People Involved. What was it like writing about the real people 
in your story? And did you do a lot of research for the book, but you were there in the front line. So did you need to do a lot of research? Are you drawing from real experiences? And what was it like writing about the real people involved? The book is a memoir and it's really based on how I remember things and how I experienced the whole startup of the channel and the merger and all the things we did to make it successful. So I didn't feel that I had to do any research or much research. I did have lunch with a couple of people from the old days just to jog my memory about a couple of things I wanted to write about. Um, but for the most part, and you know, I check dates occasionally <laughs> just to make sure I wasn't messing that up too much. Um, but for the most part, I, I remembered a lot of what was going on, what had gone on because it really was my greatest adventure, certainly in my career. And uh, it was emblazoned into, into, you know, really kind of into my memory. And, and I had no trouble remembering most of it, I have to say. Um, as for writing about real people, that, you know, that was, including myself uh, for that matter, you know, that was a little bit daunting because uh, not only about the people who you're portraying not so well, and there were only a couple of those in the book, um, and I think I was uh, fairly gentle to everybody because it was a creative enterprise and things happened and there were disagreements and everything. But especially for the people I loved and loved working with, who I really wanted to celebrate to a certain extent uh, with this book, I wanted to make sure I wasn't messing that up too much. And it was akin to sketching. I mean, that's how I came to think of it. You know, when you have a sketch pad and you try and make a sketch of somebody and you show it to them and you want them to say, hey, yeah, that's good. That looks like me. Yeah, I get it. I wanted that to be everybody's reaction who was in the book. Yeah, that was that, that you got me, you know, or even better, other people saying, you know, you really captured that person the way that person was. And I worked very hard on that. Um, and I think for the most part, I was successful. That's good to hear. And how, uh, how has the book been received in terms of now that it's out in the world? And has anything surprised you? Well, I was surprised to hear from so many people that I hadn't heard from in a long time who read the book and liked the book. You know, people in the industry, people, of course, some people in the book, old friends from college. I mean, just, you know, it got, uh, and, and everybody is very positive about the book, as, as you can imagine. But I, I think the most surprising part was the fact that, despite the fact that it's not really a business book, you know, it is about entrepreneurship, or in my case, intrapreneurship, meaning starting a business within a business, which is very hard to do. Um, and I got a lot of attention from people in, in business. Um, the, there's something called the Entrepreneurship Institute in, uh, in Denver, and they found me pretty quickly and had me talk to some of their classes and, and taped me and gave out my book. I mean, they were, they were really supportive and really excited to find me. Um, and then I've also talked to students at uh, film schools and business schools, and I'm continuing to do that, and it's amazing how interested the students are, especially students who want to get into the television industry, about, you know, they, they, they see the book as a real close look at what goes on behind the scenes in the television business. Um, it really is a fly on the wall kind of approach to what happened. And so they've been, you know, really enthusiastic about hearing about the book and then ultimately reading the book. I've heard from them uh, a lot of students subsequently. So that's, that, that was a surprise. I actually got invited to a couple of venture capital uh, conferences as well for the same reason. They just wanted to hear about what it's like to start up a business. So 
that, that's been surprising. Yeah, I would imagine. And yet there's a parable in there that uh, because of your back history as a financial analyst, you know, what happens when the financial analyst sees comedy? And I guess there's a parable in that for modern day living, considering what we're all going through right now. I think that's right. I think one of the things that people take away from it, or I want them to take away from it, is that, you know, you don't have to start your career where you want to end your career necessarily. You just got to keep moving towards where you want to end up. And the second thing, and maybe more importantly, um, is that everything you do in your career, everything you've done before is helpful to you. I mean, in my case, it was finance and economics, which got me into HBO. But not only that, gave me a a real good understanding of how business worked, uh, because I didn't know how comedy worked. I didn't know how the comedy business worked when I walked into it, but I learned that. And so all those things, everything I did uh, was helpful for uh, the next thing I did or the next job or whatever it was. And I think I found that very interesting. So are you finding art personal satisfaction? I mean, obviously, I think when people have a book out and they've got it done and it's completed and it's in the world uh, and there's a real great sense of self-satisfaction and success in that. And your book now, I mean, what, what's next for Mr. Art Bell? Are you happy with the arc of your life and having culminated with this beautiful network that has made such significant impact? Are you, are you content now being the writer, author? What's, what's next on your agenda? Um, well, as far as, uh, you know, looking in my rearview mirror and seeing Comedy Central thriving and becoming the cultural icon that it has and be- being around for 30 years, I mean, that, that uh, is, a, is a source of pride. As far as what I'm doing, I'm mostly writing now, and I'm also doing the things I just talked about. I am really working hard to talk to more students uh, and to more people interested in my experience in order for them to learn from what I went through and, and, uh, and help start their careers or, can, or um, further their careers. So it's a combination of writing. Uh, um, I'm promoting the book right now, obviously, but also doing more of that speaking uh, and I will, you know, continue to write. I am writing memoir. I'm writing fiction. I found I like writing a lot. So this is a, a good thing to be doing right now. So you're content and happy being Art Bell, the writer, or Art Bell, artbellwriter.com, which is where people can find you. Yeah, they can find out about me and about the book. Uh, they can buy the book on Amazon or at their local bookstore. And um, I hope they do. Okay. And, you know, I'm going to ask you one other top of mind question before I let you go, which is in today's, I'm not even going to call it the emerging media. I mean, we are in a splashdown explosion of OTT internet channels. And every time you flip on a TCL, a Roku, a Fire Stick, an Apple, whatever it is, there's the next plethora of 3,000 channels, which seems to be, it's the Wild West, it's carnivore at best because it's dog eat dog. But if somebody wanted to start their own channel, and I'm not necessarily talking about this proletariat idea, but you know, you started with an inspiration. You said, I love comedy. How come there's no full-time comedy? And there you go. Comedy channel became Comedy Central. And if somebody was going to start a network today in your eyes, and of course, being a financial analyst from the past on a business level, do you have any insight or advice as to what you would do for somebody having any idea to start another channel or a network today? Well, the beauty of technology today is it's digital. And I think around 2006, 2007, I started saying to people in the industry, you know what? You can start a channel in your garage now. You know, you don't need satellite distribution because we've got instant distribution. 
So I think the financial requirements to start a channel are a lot different now. Uh, sure, you've got the big guys who, who are doing the over-the-top stuff, and they've got a lot of programming. But you see what's going on in YouTube. I mean, people are basically programming their own channels. Some of them are becoming famous in their own right. And I think that is going to be a continual source of talent and a way to, um, a way to get audience that isn't very expensive and can be very lucrative. So, you know, looking across the landscape, you don't have to get yourself on the dial on television to be a channel. That's, that's, I think, a terrific thing. And I think the good news as far as our genre that we're talking about today here, comedy, it's a little, probably a little bit more interesting to look at the internet being the comedy room where you don't have to bring in your three minutes of time and bring in 18 people to buy alcohol and we'll give you your three minutes on the stage. Now the internet is the stage and you've got a lot more room to run. That's right. Excellent. Okay. Well, Art Bell today. Thank you so much. The book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And it is available on Amazon and all the local bookstores as well, everywhere. And his website, artbellwriter.com, where you can find certainly much more about art, his book, and I guess engagements, consulting, various other things that you love to do, speaking, right, Art? Absolutely. If anybody wants me to speak, especially to, you know, uh, classes, business classes, film classes. I, I am very happy to do that. Artbellwriter.com. Go visit Art, and thanks so much for your time today, Art. I'm glad that you've been able to at least hang a little bit with me, and good to spend some time getting to know you. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate it, too. It was fun. Good. We'll do it again sometime. You stay well. Me, too.